1: And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
4: I am also the publisher for Zippy Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. And you can check it out on ZibiBooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zippy Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zippymag.com. We have classes at zippyclasses.com, And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zippy's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy.
0: Matt Gutman is the author of No Time to Panic, How I Curbed My Anxiety and Conquered a Lifetime of Panic Attacks. Matt Gutman is ABC News' chief national correspondent. By the way, if you go on his Instagram account now, you will see that he has been in Israel on the ground reporting live through this entire situation. It is unreal. I am like really worried for him, speaking of calming anxiety. But anyway, so he, he doesn't just market his book. He is out there doing the thing and it is remarkable. Okay, moving on. A multi-award-winning reporter, Gutman contributes regularly to World News Tonight with David Moyer, 2020 Good Morning America Nightline. He has reported from 50 countries across the globe and is the author of The Boys in the Cave, Deep Inside the Impossible Rescue, in Thailand. He lives in Los Angeles with his wife and two children. Welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss No Time to Panic, How I Conquered a Lifetime of Panic Attacks by Crying with Strangers, Bear Hugging My Fears, and Dialing Down My Anxiety. Congratulations.
1: Thank you so much, Sydney. It's good to be with you.
0: Oh, you too. You sort of spill your whole heart and experience on the page in this book. All the things that you hid for so long with your anxiety and the attacks that some people said they can't even tell when they happen to you, but you feel them so much and you describe in huge detail what the panic attacks feel like. You say in the book, secrets make loners. And here you are, getting rid of all the secrets. Tell me a little bit about why you decided to write the book, (laughs) when you decided to write the book, and how it's been getting it all out there.
1: I've had panic attacks for 25 years. The first one happened in college, and I was defending my college thesis, and I knew it cold. And I got up to speak, and the floor fell out I started thinking, I I, I felt like I was molting into a werewolf, right? I was like, my skin is coming off. My heart is smashing against my chest. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't see. I couldn't remember anything that I was supposed to say. But I didn't even know what it was for so many years. took me 15 years after that to figure out that this was a panic attack. And then in January 26, 2020, I, I had a reckoning. I was reporting on the Kobe Bryant helicopter crash. And I had a panic attack during our on-air special event and i couldn't separate the two things that i was supposed to say it it was just happening and i made a catastrophic mistake because when you're having a panic attack your brain is really good at figuring out like where you are where you need to go spatial awareness one of the things it can't do is process long-term memory so anything longer than 30 seconds you're toast so i made a terrible mistake and then at that point i realized i either have to quit tv or figure this panic thing out, and I'd been talking about it for years with my wife. Like I'm unhappy doing television news. I love my job, but going live sometimes just is so painful because of the panic attacks. And she was incredibly supportive about it. So I started on this road, and I, you know, I started trying every pharmaceutical, and then I tried altered states. And about a year and a half into it, I well, about a year into it, I did something that I'd never done, which is. I had had a, another panic attack on air and I was sitting on, I remember distinctly, 13 C on the Southwest plane. And I started to talk to the lady next to me. <laughs> Her name is Kat Armado. If you're listening, Kat, hi. She and I are still close friends. And I basically just like spilled the beans and I never told anybody about panic. And suddenly I was telling this complete stranger and I felt this overwhelming relief. I'm like, ah, this, this, the sharing thing, this is good medicine. And then I started looking for panic attack support groups. And I couldn't find virtually any in the whole country. And you can find some online, but they're only for people to vent or to post their latest crisis. There's no sharing and there's no community. And I now realized at that point that I had a constituency of more than one. And that's when I decided to write the book. And then I started really going down the road of altered states because the pharmacology wasn't working. The SSRIs, the benzos, the GABAs the stratera the stimulants i tried everything and it wasn't working um and the altered states really did help but anyway that's that's a long way of saying how i started to think about this as a book and as something that was larger than my own little journey out of panic
0: and do you feel that now you are better much better off having shared like does it help on a deep level
1: It definitely helps. But can I say that I'm not going to have a panic attack? No. And like, to be frank, to all the moms out there and the dads who might be listening, the preparation and publicity ahead of this book has been massively anxiety building. Yeah. So like, I am not immune to anxiety. I I am not over anxiety in any way. Like, I am totally wired for this, which I'm going to wager to say, uh, you know, it makes me a very good journalist because I'm highly attuned to the facial expressions to be sensitive to other people, to try to (coughs) intuit what they're thinking, which I think is also your secret sauce, Mm. which is why you can extract things from people that they might not tell other people. So this sensitivity has a flip side sometimes, and that's anxiety because we are so attuned, so aware that it sometimes it, it, it just, it overwhelms our senses.
0: I actually didn't even know that everyone didn't have anxiety <laughs> like, for a long time. I was like, well, what do you mean this is a thing? You know, it's like everyone in my family, my, my grandmother calls it like the worry gene. And like, it just, right. I'm like, wait, you don't go through your, you don't spin around in your head all the time. Like, what do you mean? What is that like?
1: <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that there is a, a okay, I'm, I'm going to not get too soapboxy, but I think that there is a fallacy that is, the wellness world that our natural disposition is to be zen and to be calm. It's not. Mm-hmm. Humans are not engineered to be content or happy. We are engineered to survive and to procreate. And this so this is one of the other little rabbit holes that I went to in the book, which is about evolutionary science. Like, I couldn't figure out for the life of me, like, if this thing causes me so much suffering, if anxiety is so bad for us, you know, it causes heart disease, gut problems, high blood pressure, like, it's so unhealthy. Why do so many people have it? Why is it so deeply embedded in the human gene? And why haven't we selected out of it? Mm -hmm. And so I started asking evolutionary biologists and psychologists, and they're like, oh, no, this is meant to be there. Anxiety was the secret sauce that made humans so very successful. It's the reason we were able to get bigger brains and smaller bodies, less muscle, less speed, because we cooperated so intensely. We needed those big brains. And being able to be scared sooner was a huge evolutionary advantage. And it reframed the way I thought about anxiety and panic. And in terms of panic, Randy Nessie, who is one of the founding fathers of evolutionary psychiatry, was telling me, he's like, The panic is like a smoke alarm. And your brain would prefer pulling that smoke alarm in error a thousand times in favor of missing a real alarm. Okay, because if you pull it and, and you like burn a hundred calories, freaking out and, and and being whatever, it's okay. You burned a hundred calories. Much better than being dead. And so your body is naturally geared to err on the side of panic or anxiety rather than missing one of those cues or alarms. And he told me, panic is perfectly normal. And it's so simple. And it also just changed my complete framework of how I thought about it. Oh, I am not some miserable, you know, stinky kink in the human genome. I am not like a mutant. This is normal. I'm, I'm like, I'm a successful part member of this human genome and I'm just doing what the brain is supposed to do. And it gave me such relief as well. So anyway, anybody out there, who ever experiences panic, it's normal and it's fleeting. You're going to get over it. You're actually in many ways wired for it. So remember that.
0: Big relief. That's lovely. Yeah you wrote a lot about the different things you tried. I was circling, as you mentioned, you know, I'm like, okay, he tried this drug, he tried that drug, he tried this drug. I'm like, which one's going to work? And then you go into detail about the psychedelics and all of those that you went through at the end. And the one, I think this was ketamine.
1: Ketamine. Yeah. Let
0: me just read this paragraph. Then all the colors fused into black. Then there was nothing, not even me. Matt Gutman had ceased to exist. The person who was me had disappeared. So had the pillows, the bed, the room, the state of California, the earth, the known and unknown universe. There was no time, no space, no history, no self. I retained just enough baseline consciousness to know that I was a speck in a limitless void, but not enough to know who I was or to recall any prior existence. Whoa. Okay, so how do you like come back from that? Because that's what I hear that death or the afterlife, like I've read descriptions similar that for people who have died and like come back to life or whatever?
1: Oh, it's exhilarating. First of all, coming back is great. Cause you're like, Oh, like, <laughs> I'm a, this is fantastic. It just makes you so grateful for having any baseline consciousness. For me, that was one of the top, several profound experiences of my life. And I recorded the, the, the ketamine sessions and in them, I'm mumbling semi-incoherently, like some maniac. I'm like, oh, that's amazing. That's the most profound (laughs) thing that ever happened. There was another thing that that actually really grounded me and connected me to something I hadn't expected at all, kind of had in my subconscious, which was my wife had a terrible experience during her cesarean, her C-section with our now 15-year-old daughter. I was working in in Jerusalem at the time. We were both living there, obviously. And she tried for 55 hours to give birth naturally. And we were really into it. And at the end, the doctor was like, we, we got to rush you into surgery. And we were like, okay, you know, we got to get this baby out healthy. And at the very end of the surgery, she sort of came to, and they gave her ketamine just to put her down for like another 15, 20 minutes while they finished stitching her up. She went into the K-hole, but she didn't have, I had, two psycholo- I had a psychiatrist and a psychologist by my side, literally holding my hand through my experience. And she didn't have that, and so many women are in the same position, and that experience, the negative experience she had with the K-hole and ketamine propelled her into a pretty severe postpartum depression, which changed part of the trajectory of, of my daughter's early childhood, and it was really difficult. My ketamine experience enabled me to sympathize and be with my wife and essentially commune with her on a different plane. It sounds very woo-woo, but it did like Mm -hmm. connect with her in a way that i never really had. And that pain that she'd been through and all these other women who have to go through this stuff and nobody's telling them that they're being given ketamine and they might have a pretty significant psychedelic experience. So look out. So that was like an ancillary thing that happened to me during this experience that made it even more powerful personally. And so for me, ketamine was, was just fantastic. You know, it's, It's legal. It's easily administered. It's highly accessible. It's fast acting. It goes away quickly. It gets you to the ego death which so many people want to achieve. Uh, It was a very profound experience. Wow. Have you ever tried it? Uh, No. No.
0: No. (laughs) I don't like being out of control. So I, I mean, I understand. I don't know. I'm just not up for it.
1: The only way that I could really go on this journey, and it's so hackneyed to say journey, but it is fitting in this case, was to do it in the only way in the mode that I knew, which is reporting. Mm -hmm. And like my style of reporting is to go all out, right? I've covered dozens of wars and my style is to just throw myself into the deep end and see what happens. And so that was my reporting style for this book. It's like, I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to make it as painful as possible. I'm going to get into the gizzards of all these things that I'm trying to study and learn. And that's the way I'm going to come out of this. Cause that's how I know how to do things and that might not work for everyone. It probably won't. And I say it in an introduction, like this is not advisable necessarily. This is a perhaps circuitous route. The roadmap is not direct. I, you know, I recommend people using the GPS or iMaps or Google Maps as a better roadmap than what <laughs> I did. But it, it was the way that I could do it, and it was it serves well for telling a story. But I, I needed to do it in the mode that I felt comfortable with, and that was the way I went about doing it. Oh
0: my gosh. Speaking of your reporting, I was literally reading the book and then there you were on the TV reporting on Burning Man and the oh deluge and everything. I was like, oh my God, gosh, shit. like wow. that's my book. <laughs> so funny.
1: So yeah. That was quite a scene. <laughs>
0: I can't, <it> sounded just <laughs> insane. Absolutely. I just got
1: back last night. I have like did? this mud oh all gosh. over the place. And oh the food my stuff. gosh. <laughs> wow. Talk about a lot of psychedelics. Yeah. And by the way, like that, you know, I, I think that that's great. People who go to Burning Man and experience that, I think it's wonderful. And there is a wonderful sense of community for people who think that like my experimentation with multiple psychedelics was like, you know, Huntress Thompson slaloming around Vegas and a Chevy Caprice. It's not, I was like in a couch on a couch with a psychedelic coach or a guide or a shaman or actual psychologists or psychiatrists yeah. the whole time. So it was like very thought out in that sense. And like, I wasn't trying to mess around or have fun. This was like, this was extremely dedicated to figuring out and getting to this well of grief that I've described myself as having inside this pit of sadness and grief that was so deep that I couldn't access it in my regular brain. I had to go into an altered state because I too, like you, like control. And I needed to give that up. Mm -hmm. I needed to give up that control in order to heal. And the healing helped with the panic because it's all tied together. Yeah.
2: And you
0: mentioned some of your family history of tragedy and your, yeah. the loss of your father at young age. I'm so sorry about that. And the litany of other, other things facing your, your family. And how do you even cope with something like that? Right. How do you move on at age? You were nine, right? Nine.
1: Oh, yeah, I was, I was 12 when my, when 12. my dad I'm was so, still, sorry. Yeah. so sorry. No, that's okay. It's pretty good that you remembered anyway. Humans are incredible, right? We're remarkably resilient and we get through so much, but it's not always the happiest getting through, right? It's it's sometimes difficult. And we carry these scars throughout our whole lives. And sometimes they have these knock-on effects that we might not foresee. And for me, not having really dealt with, uh, I mean, I guess it is, it, it is a, a pretty significant trauma at the age of 12, you know, waking up one morning, say goodbye to your dad, and then he's dead in a plane crash that afternoon. Oh my gosh. It's, you know, it's, it's tough. And so I was really good at putting one foot in front of the other. And I've been... You know, it's my claim to fame. I can always do that, which is why I'm a good journalist. But that's not necessarily the best thing for your soul, Mm. right? It's good for journalism. It's good for moving on, for career. But your heart and your soul sometimes demand something else. And it was time that I went back inside and spoke to the heart and the soul and addressed them and gave them, you know, their due because it was time.
0: Don't you think this whole experience and, you know, in-depth analysis of yourself is just going to make you a better journalist?
1: I love that you say that. Yeah, I guess so. I hadn't really thought of it that way. I I was actually putting my journalism hat aside for a while to focus on me, but I think you're right. I mean, one of the things that it did give me is so much more compassion. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a lot of compassion because I I can speak to people who've suffered in, you know, our common language of grief. But it made me even more compassionate, and in many ways, you know. One of the things that I couldn't understand is because I'm, I'm, you know, very gregarious. I will literally my, the other asset that I have as a journalist is I will literally talk to anybody, anytime, any place, which is really annoying to my producers. Like, oh my god, I've got me <laughs> talking to someone else. We got to get out of here, Matt. Come on. I'm like, <laughs> But it, you know, th- there's this whole world of people who panic and some of the people have become hopelessly agoraphobic. Some of them have struggles just talking to people in a supermarket. And that was the one thing I couldn't understand. It's like, what, you, you, just talking to regular people? You can't do that? And when I actually had, long story, you'll have to read the book folks, but I actually had a panic attack in a novel way that I never had had before towards the end of the book, just talking to someone because it had been so much in my head. And I'd never experienced that in my 45 years of existence. I'm like, what is this? Is my, is my superpower gone? My superpower being to talk to anybody? Is that is that evaporated? <laughs> and it hadn't. I did have this panic attack. I was able to store it in a place where, of understanding because I'd just undergone this other treatment called uh, carbon dioxide CO2 challenges like hours before. So like I, I got it and it gave me compassion for a different classification of panic attacks and a sense of compassion for people experiencing something that I'd never thought that I'd be able to feel. And so that was really profound for me as well. So all of it is just about, you know, embracing life and different experiences. And yes, thank you, Zippy. It did (laughs) give me more compassion and perhaps made me better as a journalist.
0: See, there you go. You'll just have to pay attention. You'll be like, see, she was right. I have
1: you as as my coach.
0: (laughs) Funny. So how are you going to get through doing all the publicity for the book? Like, what's the plan? How? What's your strategy? How do you go through like things you know are going to be challenging?
1: It's a really good question. I had, I had a tough couple of weeks, especially on vacation this summer. And I don't know, I just feel like I'm in a better place. I'm right at the finish line too. Good. And now I'm just starting, you know, I had the, the period of peak anxiety and it, I crested that I'm over the hill and now I'm like, okay, I got this. This is what I do. I love talking to people. This is going to be fun. And I started to embrace it. And now I'm kind of jazzed by it. Okay. So it's just, I had the reframe. I I allowed the anxiety to come in. I allowed it to reside in me for longer than I had anticipated it would. And then as it started to ebb, I bid it farewell. I said, thank you for coming. I acknowledged (laughs) it and I'm moving on. And now I'm trying to embrace the experience and enjoy it. So I I mean, and like, seriously, how bad can it be when I get to talk to people like you? Yeah. Very and that's not to butter you up, but like, that's it's a compliment. It's a nice experience to be able to talk to a fellow, you know, intelligent, bright human who is interested in books. Oh, yeah. okay. thank
0: you. Yeah, I think parts of book publicity can be really interesting. And you meet lots of bookish people, people who, and I, I have found, to be honest, after interviewing a lot of people, so many authors have anxiety and anxiety disorders. It's like, I should go back through the interviews. There must be, it must be like 70% of authors. There's something about the writing and the observing and and all of it.
1: It's part of the human experience. People who write books typically are more sensitive, but humans are sensitive. I mean, I, I think that there is a catastrophic lack of understanding about what panic is and how pervasive it is in society, right? We know of people who answer the surveys that there are 28%, 28% of Americans will suffer a panic attack in their lifetime. That's a lot. But psychologists with whom I worked on this book believe the number is much closer to 50% because think about how many people there are like me, people who had done therapy for 20 years before they realized, oh, the nerves that I feel every time I go on air, that's panic. Mm. If I didn't know that, someone who like, literally thought about this for years how are other people going to be able to figure that out? So lots of people don't know what panic looks like when it actually hits them. Another crazy factoid talking about the effect on society. 40% of all patients who turn up at our nation's ERs complaining of heart trouble, thinking that they're dying of a heart attack are actually having a panic attack. 40%. And only one to 2% of those people are actually treated for panic on the scene, given whatever and released. The rest are told. You're not having a heart attack. We're not quite sure exactly what it is. But 40%, that's 3 million Americans every year presenting at ERs thinking they're having a heart attack when it's a panic attack. It is so pervasive. And people still aren't able to diagnose it themselves because we don't have much intervention. People aren't told what a panic attack looks like, how pervasive it is, what it feels like. So they can't self-diagnose. It's so sad to me.
0: It's like that scene with Jack Nicholson.
1: As good as it gets.
0: As good as it gets. Is that what it was? Or something's got to give. I don't know, one of those. And he thinks he's having a panic attack and he goes to the ER. I'll have to look it up and send it to you. Yeah. And he goes and he's like, what do you mean I'm having a panic attack? You know?
1: (laughs) You know, and it is, it's like part of TV and movie lore. And then we still don't get it. And even I don't get it. Mm -hmm. Because one of the crazy things about panic is that it's as an individual as a fingerprint, right? It varies for so many people. people have I've never had derealization where like you don't really know where you are and you lose sort of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. I have you know rapid heart rate, rapid breathing, tunnel vision sweating, trembling. I feel fear a loss of control. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm just going to lose it. I'm going to blurt something out. That's my fear. Other people feel like they're going to die. Like they actually think Mm -hmm. that they are dying, which is why so many people present at the nation's ERs. But they are so different and so individualistic.
0: And one last thing I wanted to mention, you said people ask you a lot if you know, with anxiety, why did you pick this profession? Like you could do a lot of other things and aren't you nervous going live all the time? And you said, you don't think about all the people. You're actually just mostly focused on the people in the control room, like who you're working for and those people, not like the public at large. Uh, Tell me, tell me about that. And has that shifted?
1: I mean, this goes back to, and everybody at home, if you're hearing chair, I'm sitting in my wife's office today and I never realized how squeaky her desk chair is. So I apologize if you hear constant squeaking behind me. This is part of the evolutionary psychology thing, right? There are basically two major buckets of human fear, and mothers will know this well. <laughs> the first is the fear of us essentially, like, think about a cave person living 30,000 years ago, right? You had these two major fears. One is, like, being out on the savannah and being eaten by a lion or clawed by a bear, hit by lightning, having your offspring die in a rock fall, being, you know, slaughtered by the 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 bozos in the cave next, you know, next valley over who are murderous, whatever. Some sort of physical fear that you are going to die. The other is a social fear. We feared losing our group. We feared being kicked out of our group, which is why we became so exquisitely attuned to the facial expressions of others, to social signals, because if you missed a social signal, and it got you and you were accused of either being like lazy and shirking your duties and weakening the group's strength, then you would get kicked out of the group. And excommunication meant death, which is why our social fears manifest so strongly and make us actually fear that we're going to die. It's the body. The brain sent a signal to the body. You've got to deal with this. You've got to deal with it now. And if you don't deal with it, you're going to die. That's why a panic attack is such a powerful, overwhelmingly consuming experience. And so, like, I don't worry about when I go on air, I am concerned about making my little cave group better. My cave group consists of the people sitting in the dimly room, dimly lit control room at 47 West 66 in New York. The executive producers, the David Muir's, the Robin Roberts, the George is people I deeply respect. I want to make our group better. And my fear of weakening it by losing control and messing something up is overwhelming sometimes. And that's why I have the panic attack. It's not that they're, I don't worry about the 10 million people watching. I love them, but <laughs> I, I really do. Uh, I'm not worried about them because they don't judge me personally. And I, I if I mess up, they have no power to change the course of my life or my career the executive producers and the anchors yeah. do or <laughs> might, but they don't obviously, but that's in my head. That's the story I told myself.
0: Amazing. Matt, thank you so much for coming on. Hope to meet you. Hope to see you in my store and good, good luck, luck with the rest of all the publicity and congratulations.
1: Thank you so much. Siphi. It was You're such welcome. a pleasure.
0: Okay. You too. Okay. Bye. Have a great day.
1: Thank talk. you. I really appreciate that.
0: Thank you. All right. All
1: right. We'll talk. Thanks. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of moms don't have time to read books.